can understand. And then on the other end, Lord, we thank you for new life, and we thank you so much for little Walker babies and um, for the little Urlacher baby, little Isaac. Lord, we celebrate new life. We marvel at um, your amazing design, your craftsmanship, your handiwork, and your fingerprints that are all over life. We pray that we'll not trade the truth about, um, or that we'll not worship man, mortal man, but we'll worship you as a result of this image that we bear. Lord, we just turn this time over to you. I pray that we're tuned in. I pray that you will uh, arrest us with truth and change us from the inside out, and that you'll be glorified in the product, and uh, that that product will be ongoing. We love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, tonight we're kind of straddling two chapters, which is going to be a little bit complicated. Um, we didn't finish chapter 18 last week, so I'm going to read chapter 18 as one big unit, and as we get to the point where we left off last week, that's where I'm going to pick up low crawling, kind of picking up those rich nuggets off the ground, and then we will, when we finish out 18, I have a couple of brief thoughts on chapter 18, and then we'll climb right into chapter 19. I don't know if we're going to get Lot out of Sodom tonight. Um, but at least we're going to get to the point where you see the angels, I anticipate. You're going to get to the point where you see the angels examining Sodom. You get to the point where you see Sodom revealing the condition that it really was. And hopefully you'll kind of make some connections that will prepare you and you'll be poised for next Wednesday when this whole thing unfolds in the rest of chapter 19. So let's start in chapter 18 for the sake of context. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant." So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm old and worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for God? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Now we're going to pick up with our study. Actually, we'll pick up in verse 22. Then the men sent out from there, and they, went, or they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set out on their way or to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nation of the, of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I've chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Now, these men that are turning toward Sodom are the three men minus who? Who's sticking around with Abraham? The Lord. The Lord and Abraham are going to continue their dialogue. But these two men are heading off toward Sodom. And these are the same two that you're going to meet at the beginning of chapter 19, the two angels 
it says, come into Sodom in the evening. We'll talk about that transition from men to angels in a moment and consider maybe what the narrator had in mind. But it's important to maybe, maybe you've connected these dots, maybe not, that in order for someone to go through capital punishment due to Mosaic law, they had to have how many witnesses? At least two. So they've got two on their way to Sodom. They're going to have two witnesses as to the condition of Sodom. Now in verse 23, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said to Abraham, If I find Sodom, or if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. He speaks on a little bit more. He says, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose there are thirty. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. This is the epitome of the foot in the door technique. Has anybody ever heard of the foot in the door technique, vice the door in the face? The door in the face technique is when you come to your parents and you, what you really want as a teen is a cool car, but you come to your parents asking for something that's even well bigger than that. You know, I want to go to college at Harvard. I want a Mercedes. You know, you ask them, you put the door in the face, and then you back off. When they say, well, absolutely not. And then you back off and you say, okay, can I, can I have a, a, a Corolla? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, yeah, okay. And, you know, considering Harvard and Mercedes, a Corolla is fine. That's the door in the face. This is the foot in the door. Hey, uh, Mom and Dad, can I have dinner? Yeah, sure. Can I stay up a few minutes late tonight? Sure. This progression turns into, can I have a Corolla? Okay, this is kind of the direction that he's used here, this, this foot in the door engagement of God. And uh, he pleads the case of the righteous. Now, that's important to recognize. He is pleading for righteousness sake. He's not pleading for the wicked. He's pleading for the righteous. And in doing that, he's reflecting the righteousness and justice of the elect that's mentioned in verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Please realize that he is not begging for the wicked. He's not asking God to overlook wickedness. Would that be in God's character to overlook wickedness? Could he be just? Could he be holy if he overlooks wickedness? Now you might be kind of trying to connect that to the gospel and you're going, well, yeah, what about us? You know, I know that you talk about he stinketh. I know you talk about our condition and our wretchedness and no one's righteous, no, not one. Hadn't he, hadn't he forgiven the wicked? And yes, that's where you got to see the singular finished work of Jesus Christ. Okay, you got to appreciate that is the way that God's people are forgiven. But Abraham is not pleading for the, the case of the wicked here. He is genuinely concerned for the righteous who may be living there in Sodom. Is there anybody you think you might be thinking of? Lot and his family. Okay. and maybe others that he hopes is believing. But in this request, he's embodying compassion. You're going to see a contrast between him and Lot in the next chapter because Lot is going to beg for the pres preservation of a city called Zor, but for an altogether different reason. It's going to be self-serving. 
There's nothing self-serving in here. He's pleading the case of the righteous. And he looks and acts like a prophet in this case, where he's pleading for the case of the people, or pleading the case. Okay, now, this is important to recognize, too, that he proposes that the future of the city, the longevity of the city, be based on, or be dependent on the righteous. Okay, realize, he's making that connection, and God is making that connection. If there are some righteous there, I won't destroy the city. You understand that's how God is handling this. This is a picture of the preserving effect of the people of God in a city. Can you think of any image in our Bible that kind of points toward the preserving effect of the people of God among worldliness? Is there anything that, anything that you can think of that comes to mind? A New Testament image. I bet some of you are thinking of it, but you're not sure if that's what I'm talking about. It's a preservative. It's used as a preservative. It's also used to make your food taste good. Salt. We are salt and light. And we are, and in this case, the righteous are a preservative. The hope of this community, Sodom, resides with the righteous. Are there any righteous there? Are there ten? If there are ten there, I'll preserve it. I mean, that's some ownership there, hopefully, we can make a connection from that and feel some ownership. (laughs) Little rascal. We can feel some ownership in the preservation of our community. God makes some connections between Sodom and the world that we live in. Okay, the book of Revelation is a whole book about that connection. And it's a whole book about fire and brimstone coming down in in an act of judgment on Sodom, essentially. So we've got to make that connection and feel some ownership for our community, that we are preservatives in our community, that we are salty and bright. And seeing yourselves maybe for the first time as a steward with a little plot of ground called Greenville and Hunt County or Royce City or Caddo Mills or Commerce or Lone Oak, that we are little bitty pieces of salt in our community and little bitty preservers. We have a curative effect. God also demonstrates in this little story here, in this dialogue between Abraham and uh, God, God demonstrates grace here in that he will spare a whole city based on the righteousness of some. That's the gospel because that's our story, that he will preserve us based on the righteousness of who? Christ. If you're looking for the gospel in the OT... There it is. He's going to spare a city based on the righteousness. Is he going to spare those who are still guilty? If there were ten righteous there, would he preserve the whole city? Spare it? Yes. So the righteousness of one would cover and save the guilt of another. Now don't think about it in terms of salvation in that immediate context. Think about that as an image of the gospel. And you go, well, yeah, (laughs) the righteousness of Christ is a preservative for us and protects and saves us. Also see that Christ is long suffer God, the Lord is long suffering here like he was with Noah and humanity before the flood. In the last verse of that chapter, and the Lord went his way and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The Lord leaves the scene and then in the next chapter you're going to see him mete out judgment on Sodom. Okay, here's a few thoughts for the end of this chapter. Just two thoughts, one regarding hospitality and one regarding God's power. First of all, in regards to hospitality. Hospitality is one of the best things that the people of God have. Now, we've got a gospel, okay? When I say things, when I put things, I was like, okay, what is it? Is it best ministry? I just don't want you to kind of miss out on on the goodness, the sweetness that we have of the tool of hospitality. It is friendship in motion. It's relationship in motion. It's the gospel in motion. And it will also be the soil where the seed of the gospel can be sown into another person's life. Good old-fashioned hospitality. It is something that the people of God have. You'll see a contrast between the way Abraham treats visitors and the way the world, Sodom, treats visitors. Sodom wants to rape them. It wants to consume visitors. 
But God's people want to embrace visitors, want to hustle around and meet their needs and bless them in a way that's otherworldly, the way Abraham did. And it's all pretty understated, too, because Abraham's like, hey, can I give you a morsel of food? Did he give him a morsel? Man, he prepared a feast. He gave him our version of backstrap. Any of y'all who hunt, you know what I'm talking about. When you kill a, a deer and you get that cut, it's called backstrap. Man, that's for close friends right there, bro. That's the choice cut. That's not just for anybody. But that's the way Abraham handled this with his visitors. And that's a picture of the people of God. We've, we reflect our Abrahamness in how we minister to others. This should be and is, hopefully, the character of the church. Now, it shouldn't just extend to our homes either. It should extend on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. It should just be the character of the people of God. So if a family is deposited at our home for the week, or if we gather corporately and there's a group of the families, then the tone of the community and engagement is hospitality. Listen, I, I get lost in this sometimes. And sometimes I just kind of feel like I have to take a bath after somebody's talking about, I, nobody greeted me Sunday morning, I'm out of here, I'm in and out. If that is the substance of how you're going to shop for a church home, that nobody greeted me, then that's just light fare. But I think they're on to something that people need to be treated that way. They ought to be treated that way when they're around a bunch of Abrahams. Is that we're hustling around to greet them, meet them, to meet their needs, to be their friend even though they're moments old or relationships moments old. Uh, Gary Carroll and a few others are kind of part of a, a group of people that kind of watch the front door there with bulletins. If you ever want to be part of something like that, if you want to kind of be an Abraham on our corporate gatherings, then talk with Gary and say, I want to be part of that. You don't have to be part of that, though, because you can do that on Sunday mornings. When you see a family or a face you don't recognize, make a beeline for them. There's one of me. There's three other elders. And oftentimes, we're talking about with somebody in some sort of crisis situation. It's their one moment where they see us physically, where they can talk with us. So you may have a prime opportunity to engage someone and be an Abraham to them and be hospitable. So I encourage you to make that connection on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. If y'all don't all know each other on Wednesday nights, then that's a good start. Because <laughs> we're small enough on Wednesday nights where we ought to know. I know all y'all. And there's one of me. I'm asking some of y'all to know some of the others, so to be Abrahams to each other, but also doing this in our homes, making people feel welcome in our homes. Getting to know people in our homes is the picture of fellowship. Let's turn to Matthew 25 briefly. This is not a major point, but considering the hospitality of Abraham, it's worth just considering this. It's not just a uh, kind of a peripheral notion great idea, but it's something that mattered to Christ also. Matthew 25, beginning, beginning in uh, verse 31. It's on page 831 of your pew Bible. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit in his, on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. Hear Abraham. This is Abraham. This is the people of God. If it's been months since you've had, years maybe, since you've had a guest in your home, I'm not talking about immediate family. That's a given. But I'm talking a stranger. Because this is all about kind of strangers. Shoot for having some strangers. And then maybe if you fall short of that, you'll at least have some acquaintances. For I was hungry and you gave me food, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. You were not an Abraham to me. If we're to read this in our context of Genesis 18. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and, you di- and in prison, and you did not visit me. Hungry, and you didn't feed me backstrap. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's start with our acquaintances, people that we work with. Talk about a great soil of sharing the gospel. You're frustrated because you can't figure out a way to share the gospel with somebody that you work with? And you're hoping to do it over the water cooler at your five-minute break? How about have them over for dinner? (laughs) They get to find out who you really are. You get to find out who they really are. You talk, you enjoy, you spend time together, you enjoy each other. And then you're cultivating the ground to sow the rich gospel that's invaded your life. We're not talking about a scheme. (laughs) We're talking about wool to sheep. It's not just a good notion, notion and a novel idea. Hey, it's a church growth scheme. We're talking about this is what wool is. This is what wool looks like for God's people. This is our Abrahamness. So this may seem like a kind of peripheral point, but it's pretty important. I hope it's something that you can connect on. The other thing to consider from Genesis 18, turn to Romans chapter 4. This may be for some of you, may be one of the most important things that you hear tonight. As you're turning there, I'll just kind of share some thoughts with you so I can develop this before we actually read it. God is teaching in this chapter, and he has in previous chapters, he's teaching Abraham and Sarah about his sovereignty. God's people have to learn the lesson of sovereignty. And I don't think it's a lesson you ever get down, though. It's an ongoing lesson, a reminder. And we go through crisis or we go through heartache or loss, and then we're reminded, oh, yeah, God's on his throne. Oh, yeah, God's sovereign. But God is teaching this Abraham and this Sarah about sovereignty, that he can do anything. What did he say in chapter 18 to Sarah? Or to, he said it to Abram, Abraham regarding Sarah. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When you really learn that, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then in your prayer, you're praying, asking for something, or asking Him to intervene in a way, and He does not intervene, which is very fresh and raw to some of us in this room. But you know that He can do all things? And then you recognize that He didn't do what you asked Him to do? Then you can immediately move to the place and go, okay, I know He was able. He wasn't snoozing. He didn't do it because he's got a higher reason that I can't understand. His ways are higher, he's mysterious, and he's wise, and he's good. I can trust a sovereign God because he didn't miss it. You know, knowing and realizing that God is sovereign takes you to the place where you realize that Satan does not scratch, and this is is a little bit raw. I hope Wednesday night people can handle this. It's recorded, but I don't think it's bad. I have to really judge my, filter my thoughts. Satan doesn't scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. Man, if you get anything, you get that. Satan doesn't have anything on God. He doesn't scratch his nose, if that other image was a little bit wrong. He doesn't pick his nose except for permission. Okay, Romans chapter 4. I'm going to start beginning, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Here's where I want to take this, this lesson on God's sovereignty. What this did is that fueled this faith, this growing faith that justified. Okay, it was faith that justified Abraham, not some performance. It was faith. And let me develop that in chapter 4 of Romans, beginning in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be their heir of the world did not come through the law. The law wasn't even there yet. That showed up under Moses, right? He didn't get this faith. This faith was not a performance thing. It wasn't about being a good boy. 
It did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. Faith, there's some relative words of faith in Greek, and they're all they're kind of different forms of the Greek word. We see them in English, and they're whole different words. In the Greek, they're, they're the same root word, and it's believe, faith, and trust. They're all like related words in the Greek. And that's why belief is just so lame and so shallow for us because we believe we're going to go home and eat dinner. <laughs> but what I want to, I just want to own a new word. I've introduced it a while back, faith. It's, it's so weird with faithing. That's the robust picture of faith here. And he was saved through, through the righteousness of faithing. For it is, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. So if it could be by performance, then the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now listen to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Is anything too hard for God? He can call things into existence that do not exist, like a fertile womb in an old 90-year-old lady. <laughs> That's the sort of God that he is. He can work in places that seem completely hopeless. And he calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now listen back, back to Abraham. Here's what he did. In hope, he believed against hope. I'm going to explain what that is in a minute. We're going to come back and just develop this for a minute. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we're going to deal with that in a minute. But the words, listen, here's the connection to us. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but it was written for y'all. Listen. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who have a faith like Abraham, as we're seeing developing and growing here in Genesis chapter 18, a faith who believe in Him who raised Him from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, if you're confused, that's okay. I'm going to unpack this for you. What I want you to see developing in Genesis chapter 18 in this ordinary man called Abraham is this robust and rich faith that's fueled by a big view of sovereignty where God is teaching him about how big he is, how mighty he is, how powerful he is, and Abraham is listening. And there's some things that you see here in this chapter that are characteristic of Abraham's faith. First of all, he believed God. Secondly, he believed against hope in hope. What that means is he believed against the hope that, dry, that, that our, our eyes fuel. The hope that our eyes fuel says... I'm old. I can't have a kid. The hope that our eyes fuel says, this can't be my promised land. There's somebody living here. That's the eye-fueling the eye hope. He believed against that hope with another hope, a different kind of hope. There are two different trajectories of hope. He's talking about two different directions of hope. One hope is in the Lord, and the other hope is in a hopeless situation that he's fueling with his eyes. He's not believing in the hopeless. He's believing in the Lord. He's believing in something that his eyes can't see, but that his heart can believe in. So this saving faith that's characteristic of Abraham is that he believed in God. He believed against hope in hope. He did not weaken when all he saw said otherwise. That's the hope against hope. He did not waver. He grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God, and he was fully convinced that God was able. Those are all the things that point to this verse 22, that. All those things inform that. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That's believing faith. Man, that's another message for Greenville. Greenville, it's not a quippy, short, little, cheesy prayer and a short, hurried trip down an aisle and a quick dip in a cool pool. (laughs) That would be like saying that the fullness of Abraham's faith was when God told him, said, go to a place you have not seen, where he packed up his stuff and he left the house. If you know Abraham's story and you've been paying attention the last few months, you know that was just the beginning I don't want to make little of the prayer or a trip down an aisle or a short dip in a cool pool because that could have very well been the beginning of a journey. But that's not the fullness of it. The fullness of believing faith as exposed from here is pretty doggone robust. That's the faith that we see developing there in Genesis chapter 18. Maybe the reason that we don't have a faith like that is because we haven't climbed into those stories. Maybe we've treated our Old Testament like a bunch of collection of veggie tale stories. And we haven't really become Abraham for a few minutes. And said, oh, I'm hungry. I need some food. And we haven't gone down into the pit going into Egypt. And then been restored to the Lord as we set up our uh, worship altar right there back at the Oaks of Mamre, the Terebinths of Mamre. We're worshiping and walking with the Lord again. When we climb into these stories, they change us from the inside out. And there's a budding faith that takes root and that grows and that over time will look like this robust saving faith of Abraham that wasn't based on performance. It was just based in a visceral trust in the living God that he's sovereign, that was born out in the daily life. (laughs) Dealing with crisis, dealing with triumph, dealing with everything in between. Dinner, (laughs) dealing with breakfast. So let's look at a little side sermon that just had to be preached. I hope y'all can appreciate that we could not see this developing faith in Abraham without considering that that developing faith, that's what saving faith looks like. It's not the fullness of a light, tiny little prayer. It may begin with a tiny little prayer. But if I hear one more person <laughs> say, at least he's saved, I can't tell you how if I hear that. I want to go, hey, you got about 10 hours? I want to take you through Genesis. Let me show you what saving faith looks like. And then we'll go to Romans chapter 4, and we'll see what this robust jump out of an airplane, knees in the breeze, sort of believing, faithing looks like. Do you still want to say, at least he's saved? Do you understand the context that we're living in? That's why you got to have people at your dinner table. You can't develop that in five minutes over the water cooler. Can you? I need an hour tonight, and I got your undivided attention. You got to have people at home. You got to engage them in your homes with these sort of rich truths. And know that many will go, man, I don't need that. But some will go, ooh, I want to hear more. That is a sweet aroma. That smells like life to life. And others will go, ooh, P.U., that's death to death. I'll pass. Okay? little mini sermon. Okay, <clears throat> Genesis 19. Let's go back there. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll come back and low crawl. You know, I want, if anything, oh, let me too, but as you're turning there, let me just point out, you're good turning back to Genesis 19, that Sarah also had this faith. She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 in the heroes of the faith as well. But I want you to appreciate that both Abraham's and Sarah's faith begin with laughing. Not trust laughing. laughing, Not initially. The first laugh came from Abraham. Let's just peek at it real quick since we're right over there. Genesis 17, 17. Because I think this will, will inform you about what to expect at your dinner table as you're sowing these sort of truths into others' lives. In chapter 17, verse 17, um, this Isaac has been promised to him, and it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And then in chapter 18, verse 12, Sarah's the next one to laugh. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And it says that she laughed to herself. I think it's important to consider that both of these rich, robust faiths, that's the plural faith, faiths, both of these rich, robust faiths begin with a laugh. Are you kidding me? As you're sowing into the life of others, you may get a laugh of, ha, God's not able to do that. That's not possible. But that God, through his view of, or his exposure of sovereignty in the life of some, that they will be arrested with his sovereignty, and that that laugh will turn from a laugh of, I don't think that's even possible, to a laugh of joy. You might remember what Isaac's name is, or what it means? Laughs. He, he who laughs. It turned into a laugh of joy. I think even when Isaac was born, I can't remember, that Sarah laughed a joy. Man, a laugh of almost, it's not scorn, but a laugh of doubt to the laugh of faith. And there's sometimes, I bet you know what I'm talking about. If you can look at your story, you may look back months or years ago where you laughed at the thought of God, our faith, our creation, our sovereignty, our worship, our, uh, he bids you come and die. <laughs> Kidding me where that laughter now has gone the whole gamut, moved to the other end, where sometimes you're just laughing at how awesome God is. It's a different kind of laugh. Like, <laughs> isn't that about like God? Wouldn't that be about like God to stand up and take off his outer garments and put a towel around him and start to wash feet while the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest? That just makes me laugh. Because God, is, his timing is so sweet. But what a different laugh. It's the laugh of doubt to the laugh of, man, worship. That's a laugh of worship. I think that may be holy laughter. People take that, take that to some sort of weird place, a goofy place. I think that may be holy laughter. You're going, God, it's just so great. Man. No, enough of that. Genesis 19. <laughs> I'm going to read the whole thing. And uh, we'll see how far we get. The two angels, now notice in chapter 18, they were men. But here they're angels. You've got to connect that these are the two that walked off while Abraham was talking with the Lord. So the Lord showed up in human form, it looks like, in chapter 18. And then these two humans walk off towards Sodom, and now these two angels walk into Sodom. Okay, we're going to talk about maybe why the narrator did that in a moment. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Notice at the beginning of chapter 18, Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent. We're all campers. That'll be a teaser for you. We're campers. Okay. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No. We will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Who has another version? Have relations? Anybody have anything else? They have sex with them. That's what that means. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. <laughs> I don't know what the daughters were. <laughs> but they said... Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against this man Lot and drew near to break the door down. 
But the men reached out their hands, this is the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness. It means they dazzled the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. (laughs) You just envision that. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? This is the angel speaking to Lot. Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy this city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Oh, you crazy, Lot. You're just kidding. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one, or is it not a little one, and my life be saved? And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now some things to be mindful of as you read this chapter preparing for next week, because we're really going to get immersed in it next week. Some things to look for as you study. You're going to see three things. You can see the demonstration of the wickedness of Sodom. That's the first thing. They all start with D. This is the first, maybe. Alliteration. How about that? Demonstration of the wickedness of Sodom. Deliverance of Lot. You'll see that too. And devastation of the region. Okay? Demonstration deliverance, and devastation. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do just to kind of give you, just kind of give you a, a sense of what's in store, and then I'm really actually just going to start on 19 verse 1 next Wednesday. But I want you to be mindful of this as you study. Consider the contrast between Lot and Abraham. Here's some tips. These are really kind of the fullness of it. You may find some other comparisons. Abraham is at the entrance of his tent. Lot is at the entrance of his city. Abraham is complete in his devotion to God. And Lot appears to be complete in his devotion to city life. If you were paying attention, you were seeing what he's arguing for. Abraham is the model host. Lot, on the other hand, is kind of a bumbling buffoon. Abraham feeds the visitors the finest. Backstrap. Right, And Lot feeds his visitors some sort of feast, but the narrator characterizes it by unleavened bread, which was quick and easy. It would be like the microwave meal that you pop out of the freezer. TV dinner. Abraham has incredible skill and reasoning with God. Remember the door and the foot in the door? Okay. And Lot is feeble in reasoning with his own family, his own sons-in-law. He can't even reason with. Abraham pleads for the righteousness or for the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot instead pleads for a little bitty town called Zor 
on the basis of self-interest. He's got to have his city. Not a hill country man. Abraham, listen, this is the important one to think about as you contrast the two. Abraham chose, remember how, how they chose land? How did, how did Lot choose? By what? By, by what? Sight. Remember the three stooges? This vision thing. Sight. He, he's seeing this. Ooh, that looks good. The Jordan River Valley, man. That's lush. That'd be perfect. Sodom and Gomorrah. And how did Abraham choose? By what? No? Something else. We just read all about it in Romans. Faith. Faith. Good. Abraham chose and he lives by faith. Now, he's got those brief moments away, doesn't he? <laughs> Which not so brief. Picking up his family, moving to Egypt. That's where you see grace and mercy all over it. That God reckons him righteous. But he ends with a promised son. Lot, on the other hand, chose by sight. And he ends hunkered down in a cave. Having kids by his daughters. <laughs> Hello. Quite a contrast. Now, read, these, read this uh, chapter up to where I stopped. I don't expect us getting beyond that. I don't think we'll get to the whole offspring by his daughters section yet because this is a man, it's a man which just getting to that point, whatever, chat, whatever verse that was. I'll, I'll encourage you to study up to verse 29 of chapter 19, and that's where we'll go next Wednesday night. And um, I'll just tell you in advance, it's fine dining. Study it and read it ahead, and you'll find that when we gather here on Wednesday nights is that you get ten times out of it more than you would get if you didn't study it ahead of time. Okay, I encourage you to do that. Does anybody have any lingering questions from what we've read so far, what we've considered? Let, let me also tell you this. There's a passage in Second Peter that you can jot down. While you're doing this contrast between Abraham and Lot, I don't want you to think Lot doesn't find favor with God. Despite the knucklehead that he is, he's still reckoned righteous just like Abraham. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 actually refer to Lot as being righteous. Even though he offered up his daughters. I mean, think about that. <laughs> There's hope in that. That God picks the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Right? That's the gospel. He's choos- chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So as you look at this contrast between Abraham and Lot, don't just completely dismiss Lot. But do, do, the, do consider the contrast. Any questions? Anything that you're kind of chewing on, lingering on from our study tonight? I didn't have a lot of discussion tonight. Sorry about that. Sometimes I got to do talking. But you may have some questions. Shoot them. Shoot them out. Nothing? It was clear, crystal clear. Right. Okay. Well, if you have questions, you know, I, I didn't facilitate a real question interaction tonight, but usually we do. And I'll see if I can weave some more questions in the next week. I want to do, I want to escort you all into it. It shouldn't be sermon night, but sometimes it lends itself to more of a sermon than a Bible study. Read Romans 4. It'll be something good to read too. If you just leave with what you heard tonight and say, okay, that was a pretty good meal, but you don't do anything with what you heard, then you weren't equipped for anything. You got your church on. Hello. Right? This is equipping you for something. It may be equipping you for a time that you spend with your kids over the dinner table. Or it may be equipping you for some time that you spend with a friend from work that you're having over to your house when you're being an Abraham. I don't know. It's going to be different for every one of us. But it, one thing is for sure, it's equipping. Unless it, it stays right here. Okay? All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. Lord, just keep us from just hearing these sort of truths and seeing this sort of faith and... Um, being pricked in the heart in different ways that we need to respond and change and move. 
and where we just stay stagnant and still. Lord, forgive us for that. Put us in motion. Lord, we beg it that it will be your will to grow us up to maturity, that are a people that are walking and doing, and that are in chapters 18 and 19 in Abraham's life, that are out of chapters uh, 16 and some of those um, short journeys away from the faith. Lord, just bring us into a place of maturity where we can be used for your glory, where we're hosts with a gospel, hosts with a meal of life that is Christ crucified and risen. Lord, give us opportunity. Call to mind people that we can have in our homes, that we can enjoy you with. Lord, call to mind neighbors and workmates and family members and friends that we can be Abrahams to. Lord, we are so thankful that we have something that's even better than backstrap. And we have something, a bread that nourishes to eternal life and a, a living water that satisfies and quenches in a place that no backstrap can touch. Thank you that we're stewards with that. We thank you that we're stewards with a little bitty town called Greenville and Hunt County and Royce City and Caddo Mills and Lone Oak and Commerce. Lord, find us attentive to this stewardship. Find us burdened for engaging others in the name of Christ. Lord, find us looking a lot like Abraham. Grow us to look a lot like Abraham. And all that for your glory as we enjoy Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for the finished work of Christ. We count it by his finished work that we're even praying Godward right now. That we're even in community without wanting to fight each other or hurt each other or be mean to each other. Lord, that we're enjoying fellowship is only by the finished work of Christ. Lord, we pray for the kids tonight that have engaged and the young people that have engaged the truth in their Bible studies, Lord. We pray that it'll find purchase in little hearts and that it'll be discussed over dinner tables by shepherds and teammates and families and that you'll find us ascribing, that you'll find us blessing, that you'll find us declaring, that you'll find us telling, that you'll find us doing all those things that the family does and all that for your glory. Thank you for this sweet stewardship in this community. Thank you for a Lord that's so awesome. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.